stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You know, it's a Monday. It doesn't feel like a day of action, but that's what uh, opponents of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion are calling it. It's a day of action. There's a handful of them down at Kent Hare's office uh, here in Calgary uh, with other protests happening around the country. They have been met by pro-pipeline protesters. So so we've got basically dueling rallies or or dueling protests today. What's interesting, though, is there's maybe one thing that might oddly unite these two sides in this debate is that nobody seems to to like this idea of the federal government taking over the pipeline, buying this project outright. Uh, Certainly opponents of the pipeline have made it clear that they are adamantly against the federal government taking this over. But proponents of this pipeline, people who feel that it needs to get built, uh, aren't too crazy about the idea of the government taking it over and Kinder Morgan walking away. Because it shouldn't have to be this way. Kinder Morgan owns the existing pipeline, or soon to be selling it, I guess, to the federal government. They had proposed an expansion of that project. Uh, They filed an application to build that. It went through an exhaustive and thorough review. That was approved. The federal government then approved the project. And that's how it's supposed to work in this country. And it didn't in this case. There's a new poll out today from Forum Research. Now, keep in mind, Forum Research, just over a week ago, put out a poll that found a majority of Canadians support this pipeline. But this latest poll out today finds that a small majority of Canadians say they are against Ottawa's purchase of the pipeline. So I think there's some reasons to be concerned. Now, ideally, this will all work out in the end, right? We'll uh, take it over in this unconventional way, get the pipeline built, get it operational, and there'll be a lineup of, of private suitors to, to buy it back from us at that point. No, that's an optimistic scenario. Could happen, but a lot of other things could happen, too. Joining us to talk a bit about kind of the message being sent by all of this and and why it's of concern. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Ken Coates, Professor in Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Nishayama Graduate School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, also a fellow with the Royal Society of Canada. Dr. Coates, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you again. Uh, Now, you had a piece, and it's up at theconversation.com as well, uh, looking at at some of these issues. What, What concerns you about... About the precedent that, that Ottawa is setting here? Well, the big, the big concern, the big precedent that's being set is the statement basically that a private company that's followed all the rules and gone through all the hurdles and jumped over all the, all the barriers um, is not able to proceed and does not feel safe in proceeding with a multi-billion dollar project. And that sends exactly the wrong message that any country really wants to send. We rely in this country on foreign direct investment the Alberta economy has been built over many years by domestic and foreign investment in oil and gas sector. And the message basically is it's not a very good place to do business anymore. And that worries me a lot. And, and you know, people will quickly say, well, it's only this pipeline. Well, that's not true. Energy East is a waste of money. Um, the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline cost that company a whole bunch of money over a long period of time. You know, uh, this the message that's going out there is Canada is a hard place to do business in for oil and gas. And what if that spreads to other sectors of the economy? What if a fairly small minority of people are able to direct our, our economic development in other ways as well? And we should be worried about this because, in fact, we need to have a robust investment in this country. We need to have a strong business community. We need to capitalize on opportunities when they exist because the opportunities may not be there forever. And we will be diminished economically and diminished in terms of government services as a consequence. We should be nervous. 
Well, I think we should. Uh, but I wonder, though, is, is this somewhat unique to pipelines? Pipeline infrastructure, for whatever reason, has become a, a real flashpoint in a lot of these debates. I mean, you look at other energy infrastructure here in Alberta. We recently had the Sturgeon refinery built. It took a long time, took a lot of money. But we didn't see protests. We didn't see court challenges. We didn't see the, the company encountering these same kind of issues as Kinder Morgan or, or Enbridge has faced. No, but, you know, we've also built thousands and thousands of kilometers worth of pipelines in this country over many years. We've built them, we've operated them, they've operated them successfully, they have very good uh, environmental standards, very good corporate responsibility. The pipelines have worked out rather well. And if you look in the United States, they have, again, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of kilometers of pipelines. Um, So it's sort of a bit of a new one on the block. It's come up uh, because it it combines several things. Uh, Some people are concerned about pipelines, to be sure. Uh, Some people in the West Coast of British Columbia, Vancouver and Vancouver Island, are concerned about ocean shipping. They're not concerned about pipelines. They're concerned about the ships. Um, But a much larger group and a much more active group are the Bill McGibbons of the world, um, a very estimable environmental leader, um, who are opposed to climate change. And not opposed to climate change. who are worried about climate change who want to stop it. And they decided that, that they will go after a symbol. Um, so the symbol happens to be, you know, uh, Kinder Morgan happens to be the oil sands. Um, there are other symbols they could have choose. Why are they not looking equally at the shale gas developments in the United States, which are massive? Why don't they look at developments taking place in Australia or in Africa or Venezuela and other places where they've got other challenges? Um, why do countries like Norway, I'm a huge fan of Norway, I admire their country enormously, um, producing in enormous amounts of, of oil and gas uh, from the from the Arctic, Arctic waters, um, and they get a complete free ride on this. So they've, they've decided the oil sands um, for some technical reasons and some political reasons, um, and also because of the federal government's position on oil sands, that it's going to be sort of the target of the year. And the question we should be concerned about is, in the long run, how are we going to make policy on resource development? Will we be influenced by government regulations, by environmental review processes, by strong government standards and oversight, or will we sort of react to the politics of the day and the kind of pressure we're seeing in this instance? Well, and we had one of these uh, environmentalists on last week, Sapora Berman, who's been, uh, I, I think, a real prominent voice in, in all of this. And, and I was trying to understand why, you know, for years this, this movement was telling us that we needed meaningful climate policy. We needed to take this problem seriously. And, you know, people can say what they will about Trudeau or Notley, but here we have politicians who are, are doing just that. They're putting a price on carbon. They're doing these other things. And it's become all about the pipeline. And even if that means throwing those politicians under the bus, if it's about stopping a pipeline, that's all that seems to matter these days. And it seems really illogical to me and counterproductive, really, I think, in the long run. Well, it, it, it's, it's not counterproductive if this is the, the first battle in a very long struggle. And if you win this one, where do you turn your attentions next? Um, And we've already seen the government jump ahead of this process. The government banged tanker traffic off the northwest coast of British Columbia. The government stopped oil and gas exploration in the Arctic uh, without even consulting with indigenous peoples. And in fact, the people in Nunavut Northwest Territories are steaming mad about how the federal government handled that. We've got First Nations in northern B.C. that are contemplating lawsuits against the government on the tanker traffic ban. You know, so so this is not just step one. It's, It's a multiple steps. You can agree or disagree with the whole question of whether this is the way to, to attract climate change. I always wonder if, in fact, the same people, environmentalists, and I, and I, I admire their determination, I respect their, their positions, why aren't they standing up in the middle of the traffic on the 401? Uh, why aren't they going after consumers in downtown Calgary and downtown Vancouver? And why aren't they dealing with it at the consumption end rather than on the production side? Um, well, it's because symbolically and politically this is much better to go after 
a, a an oil sands project that people don't understand very well. A pipeline project is until very recently was owned by a, uh, a Texas-based company, um, and they they found really good symbols, and they're very very good at that. And we haven't been very good on the other side of sort of making the case. That if we're not careful, we'll do severe damage to our economy, our resource-based economy that is one of the pillars of the Canadian Canada's economic prosperity. We'll also see a sharp reduction in resources and revenues coming to governments at the provincial and federal level, and that our funding ability to fund the social programs in Canada will suffer accordingly. This is an unthoughtful way to make major policy decisions for our country. But how do we overcome it? As you say, I mean, the environmentalists have decided that this is their hill to die on. This is where they are going to fight to tooth and nail to block these pipelines. That what, what do we do to, to get past that? Well, I mean, one step is what the government has done. I think, personally, they've done it too late. Um, they should have done this, not not necessarily taken it over, but had they been much stronger ahead of time, uh, they would have uh, gotten themselves uh, further along. I think when, when uh, Liberal leader uh, Justin Trudeau, before he was Prime Minister, was talking about governments granting permits and communities granting permission, he raised the bar to a completely different level. And the environmental community simply took the leader of the Liberal Party at his word. And he repeated that again when he was Prime Minister. And so you can't blame them. They basically say, if the communities aren't supportive, we're not going to go ahead. So, okay, we'll show you the communities aren't supportive. Now you get a huge debate with competing polls as to what percentage wants to see it go ahead. And does Burnaby get to stop a, uh, um, a project that has big, strong support? There is an irony in all of this, by the way. And the irony is that the savior of the peace may well turn out to be indigenous folks uh, who have not been well treated by the resource sector over the last hundred years, who have been made, making great inroads in the resource economy over the last 10 or 15 years, doing very, very well. And now they're standing up and saying, actually, maybe we'll buy it and we'll run it because we want the prosperity to come to us. And that would really change the dynamic because to this point, there's been a really strong emphasis, all the media constantly talking about the fact that First Nations oppose the pipeline. And I always screaming into my radio or television set saying, some First Nations oppose the pipeline, other First Nations are strongly in favor of it, and they're collaborating with them, they're cooperating with them, and, and benefiting from it economically. So I, I think we need to make sure we have a balanced sense of what the opportunities and costs are. You know, do Canadians support a very, very aggressive program on climate change? I'm not so sure. Um, do they accept and tolerate some uh, sort of a more water approach? Yeah, I think they do. Um, is this the way the people want to see it happen? I don't think so, because the economic consequences are very, very substantial for the country as a whole. Right. What do you make of this this notion, though? I mean, that the somehow blocking pipelines is climate policy. It seems like a very um, awkward and, and costly way to address emissions. And is it necessarily, if we're going to build pipelines, is that necessarily in conflict with the, the goal of, of putting a price on carbon or, or meeting certain reduction targets? Well, all the evidence I've seen suggests that, that over for quite, quite a number of decades to come, we are still going to be quite reliant globally on oil and gas. It's a very uh, efficient fuel, very, very important fuel. There are major consequences, obviously, if you don't do it properly, and we're learning a lot of those lessons now. Um, so I think there are other ways to get to the same result, but I think it's much harder. Um, imagine what would happen in Calgary if the same group of protesters who are doing, focusing on the pipeline decided to focus on consumption. And they wanted to stay, you know, block people from having their their home heating fuel uh, emptied into their into their home if they run it run it on 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 natural gas or on on oil. Uh, who started on, in, on major freeways and blocked the traffic and said, "Get out of your cars and turn your engines off." Right. Well, there'd be a massive backlash. 
So what happens is good tactical people in the environmental movement have done exactly what they should do. And no, no complaints. They've done everything to this point, everything by the law. They follow the rules all the way down the line. They've done exactly what our political process not only allows but encourages and needs, which is to sort of make their, their voices heard. Um, we need to find mechanisms that let other Canadians um, share their views in different sorts of ways um, and make, it, make sure that Canadians understand the full consequences. If Canadians as a whole decide we're going to have a country without an oil and gas sector, that's the kind of thing countries sometimes decide to do. Very rarely, by, by the way. Sure. Um, but that would actually you know, set a new parameters in, in terms of government programming and investment and what have you. But we've already seen the consequences uh, in the terms of, of, of sharp reduction in investment, international investment in particular, into the oil sands at a time when the oil sands have made major strides in improving uh, their environmental emissions and, and finding new ways of, of producing energy uh, out of the oil sands uh, deposits. So the irony is the message was getting through. Corporations were doing great. Uh, the scientists were, were improving things all the time. Um, and now we're losing much of that momentum. We are. Um, if, if we get the best case scenario, that the pipeline gets built, it's operational, it's an asset that companies are, are lining up to, to buy, can, can that possibly mitigate the damage here? And, and is there that, that light at the end of the tunnel, potentially? So the first question is the if. Um, I think we're a long way from there yet. The, the, the protesters have not said this because the government's in charge now that they're all going to be favorably disposed. Uh, we still have BC to deal with, and that's a formidable challenge because they haven't changed their position very much. I think the feds will be able to do a bit better uh, with uh, with BC than the private companies have been able to do. Um, I think in one sense, though, the message has already gone out there. And the message is that, you know, on these kinds of major projects, it's, it's not so safe to deal with Canada right now. And that's, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. I hope, in fact, a whole bunch of resource companies are looking and saying, okay, these are new rules. We'll work within the parameters of the new rules, um, and we'll see what we can do. But, you know, it's not Canada does not exist in isolation. There are oil and gas deposits uh, in the United States, uh, huge deposits in Texas alone and up in the Bakken Reserve. There's lots of opportunity there, lots of opportunities in Central and South America, in Africa and other places. You know, uh, Russia has enormous deposits. We've, we're, we're in a global market and a global economy. And what we've been able to offer for generations was the rule of law, the security of process, um, the, the clarity of government regulation that made, it, uh, made the rules clear. And our rules are actually a lot stronger. We have much stronger labor laws than most countries. We have stronger environmental regulations than most countries. Our approval processes are better than almost all, all the countries. We actually have a really good process. And even with all those extra costs, the resource economy, resource sector said, yeah, we'll invest in Canada because it's so secure. And the message right now is a little bit different. And what if, uh, take your if and say, yes, that, that would be better to get this stuff going through. The protests would diminish over time. Um, they will probably refocus on the next project rather than disappearing altogether. All, all but what if the pipeline isn't built? And what if the protests escalate? And what if the government of Canada loses its nerve? Um, that would be an even worse message. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, it would. Uh, and I wanted to ask you because, I mean, you did allude to it, the, the prospect of having not only First Nation partnerships with a pipeline owner, but First Nations actually being pipeline owners, owning a stake in this pipeline. At least this, this weird situation creates that, that possible scenario. Would that, would that be a powerful signal? 
It's a yeah, really powerful signal because, first off, you know, the First Nations communities are, di- are divided about these issues in exactly the same way that non-Indigenous communities are divided. They're just like everybody else. But the, the oil and gas producing First Nations know they need the pipeline to be economically successful. Um, it actually is going to be a symbol of something that's already well in place, and that is Indigenous organizations, Indigenous communities standing up and getting involved in the resource economy, not just as casual rent takers of people who develop oil and gas on their lands, but as people who actually, you know, put in the put in the, put in the drill drill the wells, put in the pumps, and operate the pumps themselves. This is fantastic news. It's, we've been trying for decades to get Aboriginal people an entree into the, the sort of mainstream market economy, and they're doing this in spades, and it's really an exciting development. So to have them stand up and say, okay, for a bunch of us, including some First Nations who've been on the record as opposing oil sands development, particularly in northern Alberta, stand up and say, yeah, actually, we see this going forward. This is a chance for economic independence, basically, for our communities for decades to come. So equity investment is really important. The, the active participation is really critical, and hopefully it changes a whole bunch of people's minds. Because the image in Canada right now internationally is that Indigenous people are opposed to pipelines and opposed to resource development. That's simply not true. And some are, but many are not. And that's got to be one of the most promising developments, certainly in Western Canada, in decades. Well, it's, there's some silver lining here, perhaps, in a very uh, unusual and concerning situation. Professor Coates, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You're Appreciate welcome. it. welcome. Take, Take care. care. Uh, that is uh, Professor Ken Coates at the uh, School of Public Policy, University of Saskatchewan, also a fellow with the Royal Society of Canada, uh, PC co-authored at theconversation.com, what the Kinder Morgan decision says about investing in Canada. It's a short version, not a lot good. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.